Hey, everybody. Okay, this is a bonus episode. This is extra. If 15 minutes of Parsha a week is not enough for you, if you're jonesing for more Parsha, then you, you may know that I teach a weekly Parsha class here at ICAR in Los Angeles every Thursday at noon uh, Pacific time. You're welcome. Um, we've got folks joining us virtually from places as far away as Japan on, on Zoom. And uh, we've been archiving video edits of the classes on YouTube, but we thought we might try cutting down the one-hour class to about 40 minutes for you, for the listeners of the Best Book Ever podcasts that might not be able to fit a midday class on a Thursday into your schedule. So I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy teaching them. Um, if you're interested to attend the class from wherever you are in the world in person, then stick around at the end of the podcast. I'll tell you how to register. Um, just like the podcast, it's absolutely free, and we'd love to have you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to your regularly uh, scheduled uh, Parsha Hour, uh, Thursday Parsha Hour. And um, today, uh, we, we find ourselves in an interesting moment in the journey through the Torah. Uh, an interesting moment, uh, uh, a strange moment, but definitely a, a pivotal moment in a, in a very literal way. The Torah seems to pivot and and to 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 begin speaking in an altogether uh, different voice. Um, what do I what do I mean by that? Um, I want to I want to I want to ask uh, a, a question here at the outset that I that is really all that always plagues me when when we come to Parsha Truma. That's the Parsha that we're looking at today, Parsha Truma. I want to ask a question that I think is, you can't help but ask as a student of the Torah. Um, and, and, and I want to ask it. And then I, I think, that, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a way to, to answer it or to think about it that, um, that, um, that we're going to get to, I hope, at the end of class. But we're going to ask the question and then put it aside. But let me... Let me start with this. Um, the reading in Parsha Truma is almost impossible. I mean, it's so dense um, and so detailed. And my question is, why all the details? Okay, so let me just give you a taste of that because if you, you know, even if you've read through the part, the, the Torah before, you, you may have just, um, you may have just glazed over this because I mean, what else can you be expected to do with a reading like this? So this is our dilemma and we're going to look at the dilemma and then we're going to like, then we're going to, then we're going to start over a little bit and, and see if we can't come back to, to resolve um, this dilemma. But um, let me first give you a source sheet so that you can actually no, you know, here what I'll do. Uh, the first, the first uh, source here, I just want to, I just want to read together. So I'm just going to put on screen. Okay. And here's just one example, just one paragraph 
from our Torah reading. This is our sacred, lofty, inspiring, beautiful Torah uh, reading this week. This is what we will, one of the things that we will be reading this week. Here's chapter 26 of the book of Exodus. As for the tabernacle, make it of 10 strips of cloth, 10 curtains, Uriot. Make these of fine twisted linen, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns with the design of, of Kruvim, of, of Cherubim, worked into them. Okay, now, when I say Cherubim, oh, I have said something interesting. Oh, there's something quite fascinating there. What are the cherubs? And this is what we do when we get to Parsha Truma. We look for one interesting word, and then we grab onto that image. And it's actually, I think last year, we did a whole class about the cherubs. And the cherubs is a fascinating, that's a fascinating image, a fascinating thing to consider. But it's just a mention here. There is a whole description of how they're made. We could focus on that. But the point is that this is, this is an intriguing word, but soon you're going to get to a whole paragraph that's, uh, that's devoid of such, uh, such oddities and, and, um, and, uh, and eye grabbers. So here we go. Um, the design of the cherubim worked into them. Uh, verse two, the length of each cloth shall be 28 cubits. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. And the width of each cloth shall be four cubits and all the cloths to have the same measurement. Five of the cloths shall be joined to one another and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. Make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set and do likewise on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. Make 50 loops on the one cloth and 50 loops on the edge of the uh, cloth on the other set, the loops to be opposite one another, naturally. And make 50 gold clasps and, the, and couple the cloths to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle becomes whole. You shall then make cloths of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Make the cloths 11 in number. The length of each cloth shall be 30 cubits and the width of each cloth shall be four cubits. The 11 cloths to have the same measurements. Join five of the cloths by themselves and the other six cloths by themselves and fold over the six cloth at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the cloth of the other set. Make 50 copper clasps and fit the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together so that it becomes one whole. As for the overlapping excess of the cloths of the tent, the extra half cloth shall overlap the back of the tabernacle, while the extra cubit at either end of each length of tent cloth shall hang down to the bottom of the two sides of the tabernacle and cover it. I mean, what? What? Like, come on, Torah. <laughs> come on, Moshe. Come on, God. What's, you can't, come on. That's not, I mean, I can't be expected. I'm going to read this now in the same way that I read about the creation of the world or the binding of Isaac. And then, you know, you find these little things. I want to read the last line there because there are these little uh, words that stick out and make for the tent a covering of tan dram skins and a covering of dolphin skins above. <laughs> wow, dolphin skins. And so again, oh, I'll spend all my time thinking about dolphin skins. And actually, I want to say, I want to promote my podcast. Um, if you're not listening to it, a shorter version, short little, a shorter version of a Parsha class. But this week, uh, that's what I did. Exactly what I did. Talked about dolphins. Dol where did they get dolphins in the Torah? Right. What are the cherubs? Where do they get to all these little things like, oh, thank God they, they're there. Vera, would you, uh, yeah, there in the chat is a, is a link to this week's, learn more about dolphin skins in this week's uh, Parsha podcast. But forget about dolphins, forget about cherubs. 
Today, I want to think about golden loops and cloths and cubits and what's going on here. How can we be expected to read this? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that it's mind numbing. And I'm not, I don't want to say boring. Because it's not, first of all, I would never say that about anything in the Torah. And maybe the message of the Torah is maybe is that nothing is boring. Okay. But, but it's, it's certainly, um, it's certainly not interesting reading in itself, except that it's so interesting that it's in there. That's interesting. What is the Torah doing? Why suddenly these kinds of details? Okay, so I've asked the question, I've asked it, I see hands up already, but I'm not going, I wanna come back to that at the end because we're gonna to have to, in order to get to um, the kind of answer that I wanna to explore today, um, we're, go we're gonna to have to take a bit of a, a circuitous route and eventually get to the person, um, the commentator that I wanna look at today to help us a little bit with this problem is I think, I think I would say the greatest Torah commentator of our age, although there are there are there are there are competitors, but Aviva Zornberg is sort of in a class of her own um, because just what she wrote, her commentary on the Torah, which is not yet complete, but I hope, uh, please God, that she will complete uh, a, 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 a a book on each of the five books of the Torah. But we're going to look today at her at, at uh, her second book. The first was uh, Genesis, the beginning of desire, sort of blew the lid off the. The, the Jewish world, everybody was, was fascinated by it. And then um, she just dropped another masterpiece, which is Exodus, the particulars of rapture, the particulars of rapture, re reflections on Exodus. It's, um, I have to say, when I first started reading Aviva Zornberg, I really, I didn't, I didn't like it. Because I didn't get it. I mean, I really didn't get it. And I still don't, like, I, I only came to appreciate the greatness of it. It's so, um, rich and so I mean I it's hard is what I mean to say it's hard but it is it is it's stunning um we'll get back to it at the uh towards the end of the class but this is Aviva Zornberg is going to help us today one of the really real real Dolehador or Dolotador um great ones of our generation okay now we're gonna stop say a blessing we're gonna kind of start over again everybody ready all right say a blessing over our Torah study today Thank God we can immerse ourselves in words of Torah. Okay, now here we go. We're going to now um, we're going to now look at uh, the 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 dilemma of this kind of reading from a different um, entry point. And that entry point here is a source sheet for you to look at. That entry point is now, now, uh, now what I want to do is start with a classic debate, a classic debate, one of the, one of the famous debates in the, in the, um, in the discourse of Parshanut, of, of Torah commentary, which is like, that, that's, that's what we're studying together, the Torah and its commentaries. And there's a classic, classic debate around how to read the Torah altogether, and is that the debate is, comes up in, various places in the Torah, but it is especially um, implicated by these last five readings in the Torah, these last five readings. So let's take a look at what these last five readings are and what the problem is. Because one of the problems with Parsha Truma is all the details. But another problem with Parsha Truma is that it doesn't, the sequence now of the rest of the book of Exodus, remember we had the story of Exodus. It was the greatest 
story ever told. And then we started to get the revelation and justice. Oh, this book is about justice. But now all of a sudden, the book is about, this is part of our problem, the instructions for building the tabernacle, the detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. That's what we just read. And the tabernacle, we're going to call the Mishkan. It's called the Mishkan, which literally mean, means the dwelling place. Okay. Then next week in Parsha Tetzaveh, we will read about the instructions for making the priestly garments. And this makes sense because what we're talking about now is the construction of an altar that will have offerings that priests will offer. It's like the first version of what will become the, the great temple. But it's the portable temple of the desert. And, you know, um, it's very detailed in both of these cases. How do you stitch the priestly garments and how do you build the tabernacle? Very, very detailed. Why are we talking about this? Why so many details? Fine. But as I said, we're leaving that aside. Here's the other problem. Next, two weeks from now, we'll read Parshat Kitisa. And Parshat Kitisa has the story, notably, the great, at its center, it has the major episode is the building of the golden calf. Moses, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and, um, and he, uh, and, and by the time he comes down, God's already warning him, oh my goodness, they've built a golden calf and they're worshiping it, they're worshiping it. They who have just received the revelation at Mount Sinai, who have just gotten the commandment not to worship other gods, if it weren't enough that God had saved them from Egypt. So Moses gets mad, shatters the first tablets, and gets the second set. That's a huge story, right? If I was if I was worried about getting bored with the with the with the details of Truma and Tetzave, I don't have to worry because that's a huge story. But then the week after that. We go back with Parshat Vayakil to describe how the tabernacle was built. And it's basically the same thing. It's just, and, that, and so they did like this. And they describe again, cubits and hooks and, um, and materials and um, units of measurement and, and all the details all over again, essentially a repeat. And, you know, I mean, there are some interesting di divergences. Notably, we introduced the character of Betzalel who will build the tabernacle, but it's effectively the same thing. And again, Parsha Pekuti, the last Parsha in the book of Exodus has the making of the priestly garments. And then a little bit of the ending of, of Exodus, just at the very end, the tabernacle is complete and then the cloud of glory appears, great. But you can see the problem, I think. And I've spaced it out this way because Truma and Tetzave are often read together and Vayakil and Pekude even more often read together. So it really, what it really is, is details, 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 the golden calf, details, details, details. Or put differently, tabernacle, calf, tabernacle. Now, what is going on there? I'm like stuck now in my stop share. What is going on there? What's happening? Like, the Torah's now. If I was if I was uh, daunted by the details, now I'm 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 confused by the structure of the whole rest of the Torah. What is you had to repeat this entire thing? So what? And the golden calf is in the middle. Tell me about the golden calf. What that? Now that's the story. Maybe save the details for the end after the golden calf, or I don't know. But why repeat it? Okay. Now that 
that sets us up. I'm seeing hands come up because this is also a fascinating question. But again, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not not just yet. We will soon get there to a place where I want us to really dig in. But right now, I'm just gonna summarize a long-standing debate. I'll summarize it using the help of Nachmanides, who puts it very simply. He quotes Rashi, and the debate we often frame as a debate between Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi is a 12th, uh, 11th century, 12th century French thinker, um, and the Ramban, Nachmanides, is a 14th century uh, Spanish thinker. And they have a debate you know, over the centuries. And um, Rashi holds one position, and the Ramban holds the other. Okay? Rashi holds that the tabernacle and the details of the tabernacle come in response to the sin of the golden calf, okay? And Nachmanides holds that the tabernacle and the instructions of the tabernacle come before the episode of the golden calf, okay? Now, <laughs> in this case, they're both right, but what they're debating is, it, there's a repeat, is the repeat meant to tell us this actually happened after these all these details, or is it meant to tell us that it actually happened before? There's great language for this, which I I I, I can't help but give you. Um, Nachmanides sums it up this way, which is this: uh, this is a totally different place in the Torah, but here's this, the language that he uses. Um, this section concerning the seven days of consecration of the priests in Leviticus was said seven days before the building of the Mishkan. It wasn't said here where it is for there is no before or after in the Torah, okay? That's Rashi's position. There's no before or after in the Torah. So we don't have to read the Torah sequentially. We can figure out actually this section happened later or this section happened before. And then, so says Rashi, but the Ramban says, but why should we invert the words of the living God? Beautiful language on, on, on both sides. So that's the debate. There's no before or after in the Torah. There's no, the Torah is not written chronologically. Okay. Um, or, no, we follow the order of the Torah. If it says it happened there, that's when it happened. Now, there are other places where, in fact, there's an e even earlier one, um, there's a debate over whether Jethro came to visit Moses and the people of Israel before the revelation at Mount Sinai or where it appeared, uh, sorry, before the revelation as, at Mount Sinai as it appears or after the revelation of Mount Sinai because it does seem to say he visited them at the mountain of God and there are reasons to think that the laws that Moses is judging that he comments on are laws that um, that that were ju just revealed at Sinai. So there's re Rashi is not just saying I can do whatever I want, there's reasons. But in this case, the reason that Rashi, um, that Rashi gives is that the tabernacle is a response to the golden calf. And, and the tabernacle is there to atone for the sin of the golden calf. And if there had been no golden calf, there would have been no tabernacle. And we wouldn't have these, all this detail. We wouldn't have these five parshot. Okay. The Ramban again insists: no, the tabernacle is is the plan A, not plan B. The tabernacle is 
a replication, he says, of Mount Sinai. So you can have a portable Mount Sinai with you wherever you go. That's a nice idea, but we're going to basically leave it aside for today. Today, I want to focus on Rashi's approach that, that is based on the idea that there's no before or after in the Torah and that the, that the tabernacle comes as a response to the golden calf. Response to the golden calf. Okay. Now, this all, Rashi's position, as usual, is drawn from an earlier text, the Midrash. That's what Rashi does. He quotes the Midrash. And it's a beautiful, beautiful Midrash, crazy Midrash. Midrash is the great commentaries of the rabbis of the Talmudic period. And this is where we get the concept of Ein Mukdam Mukhar Torah. The Torah is not chronological, which is one of the things we're going to think about today. And also where we get the concept of, and so in this case, the tabernacle is meant to atone for the sin of the golden calf. So this is like one of my, you know, I, I, I know that I do this sometimes, like huge wind, the half the class is wind up, but it was all wind up for this text. And then we're going to start interpreting this text. Okay. So let's take a look at this Midrash. This is the Midrash. Tanhuma, one of the great collections of rabbinic commentary. Okay. Uh, that's the sin of the golden calf. I don't think we need it. I just had it here in case we wanted to read that episode or refer back to it. But here's the, here's the source five is Midrash Tanhuma. Okay. And make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's the first command of the tabernacle. When, when was... Uh, when was this parsha? when was this instruction given to Moses? On which day did God relate to Torah, the portion relating to the Mishkan? It was on Yom Kippur, but Yom Kippur Atzmo, when the people were finally forgiven for the golden calf. Now, uh, Yom Kippur is, a, is sort of a, like a, a new idea to introduce here, but actually it's helpful because we celebrate the giving of the Torah, uh, say in May, the month of Sivan, and then Yom Kippur comes later in the, in the year, right? Well, usually it's in September, but, you know, obviously it's in Tishrei. And so, um, so it's after, right? And, uh, and, e and even though, as we know, um, uh, it seems to be happening right on the heels of, or, or, or I should say, it well, let, let me read this first, because I'm, I'm, I'm making it more confusing than it is. On which day did God relate to Moses the portion relating to the Mishkan? It was on Yom Kippur when the people were finally forgiven for the golden calf. Okay, so some idea the Midrash is introducing that, and it was Yom Kippur that there, there was an agreement to forgive them. And here I actually will turn back to the, to the text, because it seems when the golden calf is made that God wants to destroy all the people and start over again with Moses. So it doesn't seem like God does want to forgive them. And so, but in the end, they are forgiven. And the Midrash says, this happened on Yom Kippur. Even though the Torah portion describing the Mishkan precedes the incident of the golden calf, that's a problem, right? Like, how do you think of the, um, the Mishkan as an atonement offering for the golden calf if it's mentioned before the golden calf? And Rabbi Yehuda, um, the son of Rabbi Shulam, Shalom, said there is uh, there is before that's that's my bad. And there is no, there is no before or after in the Torah. As it says, and here's a quote from Proverbs, her course meanders for lack of knowledge. That is quite a quotation. Her course meanders for, for lack of knowledge. So do the paths of the Torah and its narratives meander. Hence, it was on Yom Kippur that God told Moses, make me a sanctuary. 
Okay, now I want to stop here. I want to stop here. And, and, and before we even get to the atonement of the, the atonement theory, I just want to think for a minute about this. There's no before or after in the Torah. And, and just as a theory, what do you think of that theory that the Torah might be written out of order sometimes? Does that make sense to you? Does that seem like a thing you can say? Is that a legitimate uh, position? And I cannot help but also dig a little bit into her course meanders for lack of knowledge. What does that mean? The Torah meanders? Meanders for lack of knowledge? It's like a very strange thing to say about the Torah. And let me make it even stranger. When you go and look up the, um, do you see Proverbs if I switch over? Do you see Proverbs now? Yeah. When you go and look up Proverbs, um, oh, here it is. Her course meanders for lack of knowledge. If you scroll back into the, the beginning of this, this chapter, it says, hakshiva. Listen to my wisdom. And it is true that wisdom is often described as a woman in Proverbs. But another thing that Proverbs does is it describes wisdom as a woman, which then becomes Torah um, to the rabbis. But it often contrasts wisdom with another kind of woman, the temptress. For the lips of a forbidden or literally strange woman drip honey, her mouth is smoother than oil. So don't listen to this strange woman, listen to wisdom. But it's really, if you read this, it's the strange woman whose course meanders for a lack of knowledge, not wisdom. So the Midrash is really playing around here when it says that there's no before or after in the Torah. You can read the Torah any way you want. I mean, I don't know about any way you want, but like you don't have to read it chronologically because the Torah wanders around and do doesn't know what it's doing or if or you there's no there's no knowledge to where the Torah is going when the verse that the, the Proverbs is using um, is not about Chochmah, but about this other temptress woman, right? That it that it the image that it sometimes borrows. Okay, I've been talking for a long time, I apologize. But, uh, but that's, a, that's all the setup. And now I wanna to start to ask you, uh, before we turn to look at, at Aviva Zornberg, I wanna ask you just like, what do you think about where we are so far? This idea that there's no before or after in the Torah, is that a plausible literary theory? Is that a plausible reading of the Torah theory? And, and how, how might it be accentuated or um, nuanced by the idea that the Torah meanders, sort of like veering around. Okay, I see a lot of hands. Everybody should be prepared to answer these questions, not questions from from before. Um, Matthew Silverstein. Okay, I'm going to put on a rabbinic hat here, not a um, my normal hat. So I'm going to say this absolutely works, um, and it works with the meandering lack of knowledge being the wrong person, because when you don't know, you're going to flow, but the Torah is going to give us true knowledge, and we don't care about the other stuff. And I think that this is true, actually. I think the Torah does go back and forth. We've got the Judah and Tamar story as, as my favorite example, or, or the Passover description right before the death of the... It, jumps back and forth because it's telling us something mm. it's not telling us this event happened and this event happened because frankly the whole mishkan thing makes no sense whatsoever that you've got this enormous portable 
thing that you're carrying with you through the desert. It doesn't make narrative sense, but it makes informative sense and it tells you something. And so it's absolutely fine because that's what's going on. But I just want to slip one other real quick thing in about narrative, which is that just occurred to me that this is similar to the Arabian Nights in that we get to a, a point and, and we've got this exciting moment. You know, but wait a second, it's morning. I'm going to have to tell you another story first before we come back to this. So it's in fact fitting an ancient Near East tradition of storytelling. Ah, I um, love and that. They go back and forth in time. And that I, just occurred to me during class today. So I hope I, someone I, I love that. Matt that. has said a lot of, lot of juicy uh, stuff there. Um, that last piece actually is fascinating to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Borges. Uh, the writer Jorge Luis Borges, and uh, and he he's obsessed with the with the 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 Thousand and One Nights uh, Arabian Nights, and and I'm reading an essay of his right now. Actually, it talks about all the translations of it over the years and how it's been read over the years, and um, and he's obsessed with it. Borges is because Borges is often obsessed with the idea of puzzles or labyrinths is a is a is an image he used, and he loves books that are little puzzles that have to be unlocked, and. And like like uh, Don Quixote, like uh, Thousand One uh, Arabian Nights, like uh, uh, like the Torah, <laughs> right? Like the Torah, and maybe this is a theory of the Torah. How to read the Torah? It's different. It's a labyrinth. There are interlocking pieces. There are the Torah goes in all kinds of different places. This is what the Torah is saying to us at this moment. Watch me. I will talk about anything. You have no idea where I'm going next. And that Matt, Matt uh, 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 really emphasized as well is that it doesn't make logical sense because we don't, it's not knowledge that we can have. It's not, the Torah seems to be operating on a different kind of logic. And that actually, Matt, I think is the reading that the rabbis are trying. I think you really hit on the reading that the rabbis are, are trying to offer of this strange phrase, um, she meanders. Uh, the Torah meanders um, for lack of knowledge. I mean, it seems almost impossible the ra rabbis would say the Torah has lack of knowledge. I think, let's just take this phrase, that what the, what the rabbis are saying is her course meanders for lack of knowledge, for lack of your knowledge. Na'umagaloteha, she wanders around because lo teda, because you don't know. You don't know how she works. You have lack of knowledge. So it seems to you the Torah is veering around. Torah is so much more sophisticated than you could ever imagine. Tor's way ahead of you. Um, okay, let's take one more comment. It's so happy to see Yael. I haven't seen him in, in, in a long time in this class, so good to see you, Yael. What are you thinking? Shalom again. I would say to the last questions that you posed, yes and yes. I think the truth of the Torah, the truth, is given in less than an instant. It has no chronology. But in our in our minimal human framework, we work with chronology. And that is the lack of knowledge, is that we, we work with, within that framework because we're so limited. We could never understand the instantaneous truth of all of the Torah. And so we, we define it or we dilute it into our tzimtzumit, <laughs> into our, our abilities, which are very limited. 
So as we expand those abilities, we look towards, well, yes, it's true that right in front of us, we have a chronology, but as we expand, especially with a class like this, we expand and we say, and also as we look, push away our limitations, we get closer to seeing that it appears to be true for our functioning, but maybe it isn't as well. Ah, wow. Yeah, oh, coming in hot from like uh, Florida, right? You're in Florida? No, no. Where are you right now? California. California. Central right. Coast. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, it's been it's fun to learn with you, Elle, and it's been a while, and and yeah, giving us a lot there. The kind, really, in some ways, we could sort of end the class now because Yael gives us the inevitable Jewish answer, which is that oh, somehow, in the strangest way, it's both. It's like both things are are operative at once, and that's part of what the Torah is doing is saying, yeah, there's a way in which we could follow the sequence of the Torah. Then there are other ways to look at it because divine, the divine reality is, is not chronological. And I think actually, you know, I said there's a bit between Nachmanides and, and Rashi, there's a middle position, which is the position of the Zohar. Um, um, and I know that Yale has a bit of a mystical streak. So I think that this tracks, but the, the Zohar essentially says the, it sort of says both, it says that the tabernacle was an atonement for the golden calf, but it had to be made before so that it, because the people who worshiped the golden calf were not pure enough to build a tabernacle. So it's important that the tabernacle was built before so that it would be pure and holy, but it turns out that it anticipates something to come, both somehow, because it's God's reality, it's God's timeline. And I and I love that, and I, I think I think that's that's a that's a, a wonderful moment to 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 leave that debate on that debate between the before and after. Okay, now um, I want to I want to move into the to, to the last phase of our of our class where we've been headed, which is to address this this um, based on the idea that there is no before or after this I, this notion that Rashi also brings us that the calf. Uh, sorry, the um, the tabernacle is meant to atone for the golden calf, and that also comes from this midrash. So now let's read the second half of the midrash, and then we'll head into Aviva Zornberg. Okay, so uh, here's the second half. The Holy Blessed One declared, let the gold of the Mishkan atone for the gold with which the calf was fashioned. Right? As it says, and all the people broke off the golden rings from the tabernacle. Thus they, the, oh, sorry, no, that's all the people broke off the golden rings to make the, the eagle, to make the calf, not tabernacle. Thus they atoned with gold, and this is the offering which you shall take of them gold. Okay, that's the tabernacle, even though it's, it is out of order there, but that's okay, that works now for this Midrash. The Holy Blessed One said, I will bring healing to you and cure you of your wounds. Okay, now. Now the, the tabernacle is atonement and, and healing. And on that note, I want to enter in um, the great uh, uh, Dr. Aviva Gottlieb Zorenberg, um, who um, uh, I said a little bit about at the outset. I, I will just give you some of her bio. She's a, a, a Scottish uh, uh, woman in, uh, in, 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 in birth and origin um, and was part of the Scottish Jewish community. And then 
um, I think uh, uh, got her PhD in English literature at Cambridge, which probably a pretty good place to study English. And, uh, but it's also, so uh, brings a, a kind of literary um, theory approach to the Torah, but is also as many uh, in the field of literary theory and criticism um, are, is also um, informed by and, and, and really um, focused on psychoanalytical therapeutic um, readings of the, of the Torah. And we're gonna get that here. We're gonna get um, that language here. So that's, a, that's important background is that, um, that Aviva Zornberg is often bringing a kind of a, liter a literary sensibility and a psychoanalytic um, frame or reading to, um, um, to the Torah. She, she has a book called The Murmuring Deep about the unconscious of the Torah, right? So, so this is a kind of language that, that she uses. And, um, and what I want to look at now is a passage in this book, The Particulars of Rapture, that has always stayed with me. Uh, and, and I realized, like, I, didn't, I definitely don't fully understand it, but I, the, the language of it feels so useful to me. And the language that she uses is one of the sections of her book is the Mishkan, the tabernacle, a therapeutic project, a therapeutic project. So take a look at this reading, which is based on the Midrash that we just looked at. Okay, so our work was not just for fun. Um, we, we set up ourselves now to, to look at Aviva Zornberg reading through this Midrash. Dr. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. Okay, the Mishkan, a therapeutic project. Even this is based on the idea that the that the that the Mishkan is meant to atone, right? Even the inventory of materials is saturated with a history of failure. Let the gold of the Mishkan come and atone for the gold of the calf. That's a quote from the Midrash. The atonement function of the Mishkan evokes the idea of a therapeutic project, a therapeutic project. As indeed, our Midrash clearly implies in, it, in its closing quotation from Jeremiah, I will bring healing to you and cure you of all your wounds. There is an intimate repressed sense of the Mishkan's function that has everything to do with the golden calf. Viewed psychoanalytically, the golden calf is a disaster waiting to happen. The Mishkan comes to engage with a profound pathology that finally comes to crisis in the golden calf. So unbearable is this sense of what the Mishkan portends that it cannot, oh, that's it, that it cannot yet be brought to consciousness. Ooh, I hate when that happens. I'll go back. Sorry about that. Cannot yet be brought to consciousness. The daytime reality of the building instructions is therefore invested with a secretive, compelling meaning that arise from the story not yet told. In some literal sense, the gold splendor of the Mishkan covers for, which is the literal meaning of kaper or atone to cover over, a network of associations not yet explicit in the text. I know, I must admit, uh, Dr. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg is operating about five or 50 levels above me intellectually. So I'm not sure what exactly these phrases might mean. And, 
and how to think about a network of associations not yet explicit in the text. Uh, I'm not, uh, maybe some of you will do better with it, um, but just to start us all in thinking about what she's doing here, let's focus on the phrase, a therapeutic project. Well, let's, let's focus on, on the idea that the Mishkan is a therapeutic project and that it comes to engage with a profound pathology that finally comes to crisis in the golden calf. The daytime reality of the building instructions is therefore invested with a secretive, compelling meaning. Okay, what is that meaning? What is the therapy of the Mishkan? The Midrash has told us, and Rashi told us, the Mishkan atones for. How? What is the therapy of the Mishkan? How does the Mishkan come to engage with the pathology of what we, what we represent with the golden calf? Okay, let's think about that for a minute. I want to just read one more passage from Aviva Zornberg before we close. Just uh, the, the, when, when, um, when she, she continues the therapeutic project, she suggests she will. She says, now I've set this up. I'm going to use it as a lens of analysis for the rest of the book of Exodus. And here, um, again, Vayakel Pakude are parshot that uh, repeat this information. So here she comes back again and says, the golden calf emerged from gold and from fire. Bitsala uses the same materials, the same energy to make the Mishkan, exactly what Cindy was saying. If Batsalel, therefore, has the power to create an antidote to this psychic intensity, that power, the Midrash affirms, must come from God. If he can work with the same fire to produce a therapeutic counterform, his art cannot have been learned from a master, nor is it the product of the pragmatic strategies of the problem-solving mind. It is da'at, uncanny, godlike, transcending any given cognitive structure. And here we return to our first comments from Matt, Matt Silberstein. Uncanny, godlike, transcending any given cognitive structure. It is, it is not the product of pragmatic strategies of the problem-solving mind. And here we also return to the inverted nature of reading the Torah back and forth and back and forth. There's a logic here, said Matt, but it's not, it's not logical, it's its own logic. And that logic is the logic of, of therapy, of a certain kind of therapy, which is, um, which is a certain kind of meditation, certain kind of meditation. And I, th that's, that's, I think, where I want to, 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 en to end this, um, this exploration is thinking about the Mishkan as a, a therapeutic project, but also thinking about the Mishkan as a meditation, a meditation. And the, the, in, in, the, in, the, um, in, in religious language, in the sort of the pantheon of, 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 of world religions, I think actually the parallel that comes to mind is the rosary, the rosary, which actually I read a little bit about it before this class. And they, you know, uh, the encyclopedia says that it appears, the rosary appears actually in most world religions, right? Famously Catholicism, but also there are Buddhist rosaries, there are, there are Islamic rosary, by which not rosary, that's the Catholic term, but um, beads that one uses and wears to count and count one through a meditation. And, and you, it's quite complicated in, 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 in the Catholic um, liturgy. It's like, and you say, oh, 100 Hail Marys and seven stations of this. And, you know, and it's very intricate. The same kind of intricacy of just sort of what kind of meditation. 100 Hail Marys, isn't it boring by the seventh time, by the 70th time? Right? So Judaism doesn't have a rosary, but we do have the Mishkan. 
And then you put the next plank in, and then you put the next plank in, and there is a kind of a cooling perhaps that's having a kind of a kind of zoning back in after the wild, the explosiveness, just explosiveness of the Mishkan. Okay, I think I have time for one last comment. I'd like to call him Payam. The Torah is nonlinear. What it does is it foreshadows, um, what it does is it presents the solution and then it gives you the problem. And then because you know what the problem is, it reiterates the solution. So in the case of the Mishkan, it starts with minutia. This is the way we, our holy code should be almost. It should be the small things. And then comes the golden calf. And it says religion is just ethereal. If it's not tangible, people will make this thing to worship. So it goes back to the Mishkan, which is as minutiae, as small as possible. And that's what she's saying in terms of therapy. That therapy is the small, tiny things we do in and out every single day that we as human beings need to be grounded. And that's what the Mishkan does for us. Okay, this is a, an incredibly um, uh, a perfect place to end. I thank you for that, Payam. Payam, by the way, who I think celebrates a birthday this week and also um, just recently lost um, his grandmother. So let's just, let's, let's dedicate our, our Torah study today to, uh, to the elevation of the soul. What, what's your grandmother's name again, Payam? Uh, Saji. I don't know her Hebrew name. Okay, yeah, to the elevation of your grandmother's soul. Um, uh, and, and happy birthday to you, Pyam. And thank you for that. That is that is the an important next place to take this conversation is to think about maybe now how all of these little details aren't just a response to a problem, aren't just a counter therapy, but actually there's something that the Torah is saying that that that, that it's not that the devil is in the details, just the opposite. The details are are the opposite of the devil. The devil is explosion. The details allow us, it's in the details that life has lived. And yeah, there's explosion all over the Torah and the explosion of Mount Sinai and the parting of the Red Sea, wow. But there's something that will eventually we will have to come to as a people, which is to see that life is lived in every minute detail. And that is that becomes the basis of our, of our whole halachic system, our whole religious practice. It's like all the little details, all everything's a rosary, right? Like, what blessing do I say before I eat this apple? Right? Oh, I'll say it. when, oh, is it the sun is setting? So it's so I have to, I have to, I have to pray the afternoon prayer. Like everything, there's everything, the details make up the entire world. And the Mishkan is, is asking us to, to, to focus in now and to look at the details and to look at things with nuance and texture, not to be bored by the plank and the plank, but to really think about it, what it meant to construct, because someone has to do construction in the world and someone has to do every detail-oriented thing in the world. And it's all important. It's all important. It's all important. I'll close with the words of uh, my friend, uh, Rabbi Chagai Reznikov, who is now a, a teacher at my old rabbinical school, but a good friend of mine for a long time. And he, he said, I remember him saying that when, when we come to Parsha Truma, I think he may have said it about the book of Leviticus, but same idea of all these, these, these intricate details. He said, it's like every year you read through the Torah and you get to this point and it's as if the, the, the Torah is all of a sudden saying like, oh no, 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 this book is about everything, everything.
Okay, that's it. A taste of our weekly Parsha class. Uh, I want to thank everyone who came to the class, some of whose voices you may have heard today, uh, some you didn't because the podcast has been edited. So just want to thank everybody. Um, And speaking of editing, I want to thank also our uh, editor, Vera Blossom, for her great work. If you'd like to join our class sometime and come and and join our our circle of of Torah geeks, you can find us, uh, again, Thursdays, 12 p.m., online at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And uh, and if you go to the calendar, uh, then you can find a Zoom link and just click in. And um, and in the section uh, on the website uh, that that uh, we keep our classes, you can, if you click on Parsha Study, you'll find all of our archived classes and source sheets and everything we discussed there. So if you're looking for a regular Parsha class, I'd love to see you. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, I will talk to you next week. 